How many of you know that's true? He's never, ever made a promise that he will not keep for us and keep for his own glory and namesake. Would you take your Bible this morning? Turn to Joshua chapter 4, please. Today is not only Father's Day, but in my own personal life, it is my 23rd wedding anniversary with my bride. And uh, I, I'm, you don't, you don't have to do that. Uh, um, what you need to do is applaud for her for not, you know, for putting up with me for 23 years. That's what you need to do. And uh, any woman that can do that is a great lady. And uh, <laughs> now look, some of you buzzards, that's the only amen you'll say all morning. The only time you feel led to say something. Now, you better amen the message, too, now. I'm going to call whoever that was out. I'm going to call you out over here. Heard about the one fellow. Well, I, I, I didn't hear about him. This is a, it's not a personal testimony. I do know this fella. Uh, in fact, it was a family member. <laughs> it was a relative, and it was their anniversary. And he gave his wife a broom and... Uh, for, I'll, I'll let you think through that, and uh, that's, that's not a good statement to make when you give your wife a broom for the anniversary, and you can take that several ways, you know, either here's your broom, get to work and use it, or here's your broom, get on it and fly with it, you know, <laughs> that's what, I, men, let me give you, let, let me help your marriage this morning, all right, don't give your wife a broom, all right. You say, well, I got you beat, CP. I'm going to give her a vacuum cleaner. Well, you <laughs> give her a trip or give her some flowers or something, a gift card. Don't give her a broom. <laughs> Don't give her a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> All right, that's like giving her a bottle of dishwashing soap and saying, here. <laughs> you know, Happy anniversary, babe. I love you. Go wash dishes. All right, you know. <laughs> I love my wife. I'm thankful for her. I really am. She's the bomb diggity Snoop Dogg. But anyway, we also this morning we're delighted to have a group from from all the way from California. These folks came just to hear me preach this morning. No, that's not true either. It's a group from California. Would you guys stand? If you're from those of you from California that came, they came to the heart of to to to, to Youth of Flame. We have nearly a whole row of, of y'all, give them a hand for being here. Show a little bit of Eastern North Carolina hospitality. Y'all may be seated. Y'all, thank you for being here. That, that they're from Brother Marcos's home church, New Hope Free Will Baptist Church, in, uh, well, outside of Bakersfield, California. And, uh, but we're, we're honored that they're here. They're, they're here for the uh, Youth of Flame Teen Conference, and we appreciate them being here so much. And they didn't have anywhere else to go this morning uh, without hurting Brother Marcus's feelings, so, I'm just, so they showed up here today. So we're thankful that they're here this morning. Would you bow your head with me as we seek the Lord and ask him to change us, to speak to our hearts this morning? Now, Father... We bow in your presence, and I ask you to please 
have your way in this service. We feel and sense a real desperation. I pray that we would not just go through the motions of sitting here this morning. I ask you, Lord, that you would cause all of us to be tuned in and anointed as we receive the preached word. Your word, the Bible, that that will forever live and abide. It's your truth. Help us to understand it. Help us to live it. Help us to obey it. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Many of you, most of you, I'm sure, at one time or another in your life have made a trip to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is filled with all kinds of things. One of the things that it's filled with is memorials, monuments. The most popular, most visited memorial in Washington, D.C., in fact, it's the most visited, most popular memorial in the country, is the Lincoln Memorial. And it's the most popular, not because of what the memorial is made out of. It's not the most popular because of it has such a unique design. That's not why it's the most popular. It's the most popular and the most visited memorial in America and in Washington, D.C. because of who and what exactly it represents. So it is with memorials. It, it, what gives a memorial its symbolism and its appeal and its importance is what the memorial represents. I want to tell you today that Joshua chapter 4, what we're about to read, is all about memorials. And I want you to look in verse 1. Before we read verse 1, you have to understand what's going on in chapter 3. Now listen carefully. I want you to lock in right here. In chapter 3 in Joshua, God had brought the children of Israel. By this time, their number was well in the millions. There have been various estimates on how many people were actually numbered in the, with, with the children of Israel. Uh, a conservative estimate is 2.5 million. Uh, some even believe there could have been as many as 6 million Jews by this time after they journeyed for 40 years in the wilderness and they're on the precipice of the promised land. And God has brought them to this point here, just on the other side, on the other side, on the, the, uh, the bank of the Jordan River. And just across the river was the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land that 40 years earlier God had said to go in and possess the land. And you remember what happened. They balked. The spies were sent Ten came back with a negative report. Only two came back with a positive report. And the, the decision was made not to go in. They doubted God. They had a lack of faith. And then when God told them that because of their disobedience and reluctance to obey, he was going to allow them to wander and just really just go in circles in the wilderness for 40 years. They got a little ragtag group together, tried to go in without God's blessings. They were soundly defeated. 
And so for 40 years, all they did was, was just wander around. And if you trace their journey for 40 years, it's obvious that all they did is just basically just go in big circles over and over and over again. So Moses has died. He's passed off the scene. And they say that it, it's now 40 years to the day. God said it's going to be 40 years. 40 years to the day, they're right back where they began 40 years earlier. Except this time, they're confident in God. They're confident in God's ability, confident in God's leadership. And the Lord has brought them here. And what happens is, is God says, okay, today we're going to cross over the Jordan. And God performs a miracle just like he did at the Red Sea. He holds up the waters of the Jordan River. And dries up the riverbed. And all those folk walk across on dry ground. And so I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And it came to pass, and all the people, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man. And command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of the Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And ye shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. So verse 3, God says, Okay, I want these twelve men, one from every tribe. He says this Previously in chapter 3 verse 12, he says you take one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel and when the land, when the riverbed is dry and the people have gone over, you send those 12 men to go out 12 large stones, I'd call them a boulder, and you tell them to pick out 12 from that riverbed and they're going to carry these memorial stones to where you're going to lodge tonight and that place we'll find out was called Gilgal. And he says, I want you to set up those stones, arrange them, pile them up as a monument, as a memorial. Verse 4, Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God and in the midst of Jordan take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel verse 6 that these may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying what mean ye by these stones in other words why are these stones here what's this memorial for then you shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan the waters of Jordan were cut off these stones shall be for a, there it is, a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of Jordan as the Lord spake unto Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Joshua set up 12 stones, watch this, in the midst of Jordan. In the place where the feet of the priest which bear the ark of the covenant stood. And there, are, there, there they are unto this day. This morning I want to talk to you about memorial stones. 
memorial stones. Two memorials were actually set up in this chapter. One at Gilgal with the 12 stones taken from the riverbed. 12 uh, more stones were then gathered just before the priest passed over and the water came back down. There was another monument set up in the middle of the river. Commentators and scholars believe that yes, the water overflowed. That particular monument and memorial but that it was so vast and made such a difference that when the river flowed again, yes, it covered the rocks, but it, but it caused uh, waves and ripples, and it was obvious that there was some obstruction under the water level, and that stood as a monument, as a testament to what had happened. The first was in the riverbed. But the second monument, the second memorial, was at Gilgal. Gilgal, the name of Gilgal means rolled away. It was seven to eight miles away from the Jordan River. It would be their headquarters while they were conquering Canaan. So for days and weeks and months, they would would live and reside at Gilgal in these parents and these children and these families and these millions of Jews had to pass by and had to see that monument, that, that, that constant stone memorial to the power and the goodness of God and the miraculous that God had performed in their life. And I want to say, first of all, I notice a powerful revelation Verses 14 through 17 of the previous chapter, God is giving the instructions and God is telling them what's about to happen. And just as with the children of Israel 40 years before when they were at the Red Sea. Here at the Jordan River, when the priest, when their toes, when their foot touched the water, God stopped the water up. At the Jordan River. And I want you to understand something very interesting. That the miracle was twofold. Yes, the water stopped flowing. In other words, God stopped it up. It's interesting to note that this was during the flood season there. In what we would call now Israel. And so the Jordan River wasn't some little dinky tributary or little creek. The Jordan River actually was even larger than its original size and it had overflowed its banks. Even the region around it was flooded. (laughs) So when the priest obeyed God and they put their first foot down and God stopped the water, can you just, just hold up just a minute? Again, we read these narratives in Scripture and we've, you know, read, for many of you, you've read it and heard about it all your life. And it's almost ho-hum. But I'm telling you, this was a different generation. This was the gang who didn't see the Red Sea. They weren't there. Uh, they were 40 years and younger. They had never seen God's power displayed like this so radically. And they didn't sit like many of us are going to sit right now and just twiddle our thumbs and hope that the time comes for us to leave. They were mesmerized, astonished, blown away by what God did when he stopped the waters. Nobody could do that. No man could orchestrate that and cause that to happen. 
some liberal scholars and theologians, self-proclaimed theologians, say that this was all coincidence. That that really wasn't an obvious move of God. That God allowed that that that, that God didn't have anything to do with this, but that there was a landslide, fifteen miles upstream, and that that was the reason the water stopped up and didn't flow. And it just so happened that the landslide coincided with when the Jews were crossing the river. Can I tell you what that is? There's a Hebrew word for that. It's called baloney. Here's the deal, friend. Why is it so hard just to take God's word at face value? Now, y'all, come on. If he's powerful enough to create every single thing you see, and if he's still alive, and if he still has power to save, and if he still has power to do this, this is no problem for God. You say, what do you believe happened, preacher? I'll tell you what I believe happened. I believe it happened just like God's word said it happened. That God stopped up the water. And it quit flowing. Not only was that a miracle, but I want you to think about this. If you've been around or walked through rivers much at all, if you've been around bodies of water, fishing, playing in the water, whatever, you know that if if water has been flowing through a river or a creek bed any length of time at all, even if you stop it up for at least hours afterward, give me the condition of the creek bed, the river bed. It's muddy, it's wet, there's puddles, it's still sopping wet. And can you imagine, brother, when you walk through, if you tried to walk through a, a, a dry riverbed, even, even hours after the water had been stopped up, you'd still have mud. Can you imagine millions of people tra- traveling the same muddy path? Somebody, after a while, is going to get bogged down. Uh, uh, By the way, uh, they had millions of people, but then they had livestock. They had wagons. Wagons being pulled by animals with hoofs. Cattle. Mules. Horses. Camels. Did I say that? Anyway, they had all these animals. And it wasn't just the people, the humans that were crossing the the riverbed. It was the animals crossing the riverbed. But here's what the miracle is. God said that it was dry ground. He didn't say it was ground that had puddles of water still left. He didn't say it was ground that was still muddy and that they had to push one another and pull one another out to get them across. Brother, when God stopped up the water, that was miracle number one. Miracle number two was that the ground itself was dry as corn shucks from last year. I mean, it was dry as dry can be. You say, can you explain that? Yeah, I can explain that. Because God, who caused the water to stop, doesn't have any problem drying up a wet riverbed. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but it meant everything to them. It was another testament and another proof of the greatness and power of God. You know what that said? That said this to them. You know what? God is able. (laughs) 
That was the revolution, the revelation. God is able. God is able to do what? Friend, God's able to do whatever needs to be done. And I say this to you, he's able to do that in your life and mine. It revealed that God's enough. They didn't have an army. They didn't have people going before them, fighting. Their, listen, nobody could have manipulated the river like that, but except one God. He's enough. Can I tell you this morning, for what you need in your life and what I need in mine, God's enough. You're like, well, you don't know what I need today, preacher. I don't have to. God's enough. He's enough to restore. He's enough to change. He's enough to tweak what's in your life. He's enough to go before you. God is able, God is enough. And then they learn this. Here is a powerful revelation that he alone is worthy. God's worthy. Brother, just like they did when they praised him in Exodus, when he opened the Red Sea, they got on the other side and they realized God is worthy to be praised because he stopped the waters now just like he did 40 years before. It reminded the Jews of what God did for them 40 years before at the Red Sea and every day since when he provided every bite of food that they needed, when he provided every stitch of clothing that they needed. Hey, it's a different location, but it was the same miracle. It's a different body of water, but it's the same all-powerful God. And let me say this, in your life and mine, when God chooses to work, it may be different circumstances. It might involve different people, but I'm telling you, it's the same glorious God who is working behind the scenes. So we have a powerful revelation. Quickly, we have a personal reminder. God tells Joshua to tell the men to get the rocks to set up the memorial. Why? What's the purpose of a memorial? To remind us of something significant. Why do we need that? Did you know we're prone to forget stuff? Maybe you heard about the fellow named John. John had a hard time remembering stuff. And he ran into his buddy named Bill. And John said to Bill, he said, Bill, he said, man, I ain't seen you in a long time. He said, you remember what a bad memory I used to have? Bill said, yeah, I certainly do. And John said to Bill, he said, well, it's not bad anymore. I went to a seminar that taught me how to remember things. And oh, Bill, I'm telling you, it was great. And now I have a wonderful memory, he said. Bill answered, said, that's great. What was the name of the seminar? Well, John said, wait a minute. He said, my wife went with me. I'll ask her. So he turned and saw his wife nearby. Then he turned back to Bill and said, Bill, said, what's the name of that flower with a long stem and thorns and a red bloom? Bill said, you mean a rose? John said, yeah, thanks. Hey, Rose, what was the name of that seminar to help me remember stuff? Some of y'all aren't laughing because you, you, you're not there yet, right? <laughs> the ones laughing are there. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Why the memorial? <laughs> because we all have a proneness to forget sometimes, even the important things. 
can you think of any more important thing in your life than what God has done and is doing for you? And then thirdly, I, I, I notice a parental responsibility. It's interesting that 12 men were selected, one from each tribe, to carry the 12 stones, those miles, to Gilgal. Those men obviously had to have been, must have been strong, able-bodied men. It goes without saying that the men, the Christian men in here today, parents, men particularly, who build memorial stones for their families must be men of God's strength and courage and conviction. And God, God put the responsibility here on the parents. Because he says in verse 6, he said, let me tell you why I had you do this. Notice what he said. He said, this is a sign. This is a reminder that when your kids, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean these stones? In other words, why is this memorial here? Verse 7, God says, I want you to tell them what I have done. That's why you have memorials. That's why I wanted these 12 stones set up. Because you have a parental responsibility. Friend, memorial stones are to be a basis for sharing the reality of God with our children. And I'm telling you this morning, God has called you as a family. Let's get specific. God has called you as a man to set up some memorial stones for your wife and your children. You say, I don't have any kids yet. Okay, God wants you to set some up for your wife. Sir, you are the high priest of your home. That means the parental responsibility for the leadership and the spiritual development of your wife and children fall on your shoulders. You're like, really? Yeah. I thought that was the preacher's job. That's yours. I thought that was Sunday school teacher's job. No, it's yours, sir. I say that respectfully. That's your job. That's your job. That's your job, sir, to lead your wife and lead your kids and set up some memorial stones for your family. The spiritual weight of responsibility for your family's spiritual development rests on you. Nowhere else. If it goes south, you cannot blame the church. You cannot blame your school. You cannot blame a coach. You can't blame a youth pastor. You can't blame a pastor. No, listen carefully, friend. God's put the responsibility of spiritual leadership and spiritual development for your family on your shoulders. We have men in our culture and men in our county and men that you know and I know by the droves that are shirking and ignoring that responsibility. In their minds, it doesn't exist. They've not taken the mantle. They've not felt the personal weight that God has put on their shoulders. He's clear about that in Deuteronomy 6. He's clear about that in Ephesians 6, 4, where he says in Deuteronomy 6, for the parents, the dads, the granddads to teach their children. 
He says in Ephesians 6 to bring your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Dale Hudson said this, and I quote, An inheritance is leaving your children what you had, but a legacy is leaving your children who you are. What you leave them far surpasses what you leave to them. Question, are you leaving an inheritance or are you leaving a legacy? So as we close this morning, let me give you some memorial stones to set up for your family. Now hang with me. Listen carefully. Number one, assume your role as the spiritual high priest of your home. You see, sir, you are the chief memorial builder in your family. Not not your wife. It's not mom. It's you. Have you assumed that role? Are you living that role out? Some of you men depend on your wife to decide whether or not you're going to church. Why? Going to church is not her decision. That's yours. That's yours. Some of you men sitting right here, you've turned the parenting role and the leadership role in your home, you've turned it over to your wife. And I say this respectfully, and I say this with love, but I'm praying that God helps all of us this morning as men to realize that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not biblical. You men ought to be shouting your preacher down right now. I'm telling you right now. But you know I'm telling the truth. When it comes to child discipline, men go either two extremes. We're either passive and we leave it up to the wife or we're too strong and we produce rebellion in the heart and mind of our kids. And I'm telling you, there's a biblical balance there. And as the high priest of my home, I'm to find that biblical balance. Hey, men, step up. Men, step forward. And assume your role for what God has told you to do. Let me give you this one. Regularly rehearse your salvation testimony to your family. Do your, can your wife give your testimony? Does she know when you got saved? Do your kids know when you got saved? You say, well, I don't know, I don't know. You know how they can know? is when you rehearse it to them. Listen, when you take them by the house you were living when you met Jesus. When you take them by the church where you came down to an old-fashioned altar and you gave your life to Christ. You take them by the spot where you met the Lord and He saved you and He radically changed your life. Do they know your testimony? Tell them. Share it with them. Voluntarily give reasons behind your rules and behind your decisions why you do certain things. Things like standards that you set up for your home. Don't just say, well, bless God, it's that way just because I said so. No. And I know you don't have, listen, sometimes you can't, you can't give every 
John Brown reason why you tell them to do something. But there are appropriate times when you sit them down, especially when they get some maturity on them, and you rehearse and you go through and you tell them, now, son, I love you, and I want you to understand why we have established these standards for our home. You, you see, that way they don't just see them as the church rules or the school rules. No, no, no. Because if we're not careful, especially in our ministry, kids will begin to see every rule as an institutional rule. No, it's not. You see, I have some reasons. My wife and I have biblical reasons why we've set up some standards for our home. But there are some things we will do and things we will not do. And it's not because of your expectation. It's because of what the Bible says. Tell your kids that. Explain to them why you tithe and why you give over and above in an offering. Let them take part in it. Show them the check. Show them if you use automatic draft. Show them, your, show them and tell them, kids, this is why we do this, because we love the Lord. Let your family in on your struggles and victories. Hey, if you make a mistake and you sin, and you will, especially if they know about it, you go to your kids and you go to your wife and you apologize to them. And you make it right with them. And you explain to them, Daddy did wrong. Honey, I'm sorry, I did wrong. I was wrong in my attitude. I was wrong in my tone of voice. I was wrong in what I did, and I made it right with God, and I'm making it right with you. You pray for Daddy. You mean to tell me, Christian Powell, that you would actually ask your kids to pray for you when you're wrong? Yes. Let them know about the victories. Teach your family how to walk with God. They're going to learn how by watching you. You don't have a prayer time and a time in the Bible. Chances are when your kids get grown, they're not going to have a prayer time or a time in the Bible. Have a family altar time where you get together with your family at least once a day. You pray together. You have times of spiritual instruction. Lead that, sir. Lead that, sir. Enforce that in your home. You don't have to make it rigid. It doesn't have to be revival meeting every night. But you lead your family altar time. Charles Spurgeon said, Brethren, I wish it were more common. I wish it were universal with all Christians to have family prayer. I fear that there is such a neglect of family worship that it's not probable that the children are at all impressed by any piety supposed to be possessed by their parents. Friend, if he said that over 150 years ago, how much more true is it today? One grateful adult child of Christian parents said that God used the fact that my dad led us in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. No matter how far I went astray in later years, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity. And I want to thank my dad, he said, for that. Share answers to prayer and expressions of God's goodness. Can you tell them what God has been doing in your life and in your heart lately? Is he real to you? If he isn't, he probably will not be real to your kids. 
my wife and I, and listen, oh my goodness, we are far from the ideal Christians and the ideal Christian parents. We're like you. Man, we're trying. We try to share with our boys when God answers prayer and does special things in our lives. Just the other night, there were two things. It was Thursday night. We were in the truck together, and two things, and it doesn't matter what it is for y'all because y'all wouldn't understand or appreciate it, but they know there were two things specifically God did for us this past week that were God things. Y'all know what I mean by that? God, God moved. God answered prayer. God showed himself strong. Do you ever share that with your kids? See, every time we do that, that's a memorial stone. I'm asking the men, the men today. I'm done preaching. Men, men, whether you're married or not, whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a grandparent or not, men, I'm going to ask you this morning to determine again before God Almighty, Lord, I want to be your man. I want to be a memorial man where my life and my legacy and my lips point others and point my family to you. I'm going to ask every man in here to come to this altar this morning and refresh your commitment to be that kind of man. And ladies, if your man comes, I'm going to ask you to come with him. I'm going to ask you to join him at this altar. I'm going to ask you to, as a gesture of support, to determine I'm going to support my husband and his commitment to be God's man in this day. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're in the right place. Would you give your heart to Christ today? I don't know what your need is. I'm asking every man in this room to make a spiritual commitment to Christ today. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed.